as we have moved into this section, uh, a new section, it's not a new topic, but a new section. A new section here in 1 Peter on suffering, it's not a new topic because we've already studied it in previous passages. And so we are developing it in four areas. We see why are we suffering? What are we suffering for? We looked at two of those last week. Uh, we looked at the necessity of suffering for righteousness. That this is the evidence that if you're in a bad place and choose to do right or good, you should anticipate that there will be antagonism against you. Because those who practice lawlessness, those who practice in the dark, hate the light. Jesus told us that. And so we anticipate that if we come to the environment with light of righteousness, that they are going to hate that. That they're going to be in opposition to that, and therefore we should be prepared to suffer for righteousness' sake. That we are going to uh, defend it by our very lives if necessary. We're going to do what is right no matter the cost. That's very important in Peter's uh, development of all of his arguments. He has made a decision in his life to do it no matter the cost. And that's going to come up again and again. And in fact, one of the key phrases that I like to use as a theme verse for Peter is to count the cost, take up your cross, and follow Jesus Christ. You know, that's Peter's statement. Um, And he understands that's his future because God told him that. Jesus Christ told him that before his uh, ascension. And so we find that we are to anticipate suffering for righteous sake and in fact understand that suffering as being in a blessed state. Not blessed by the world and in worldly ways, but blessed by God in supernatural ways. And we talked about that last week. We then also saw the value of it sanctifying us, that we are, we are sanctifying the Lord God, I'm sorry, sanctifying the Lord God in our hearts, that we are maturing in our lives this process of greater and greater dependence upon Jesus Christ. This is accomplished best through the suffering motif in Peter's mind and in God's plan. That is, when we are in need, that we seek out the Lord. And that's not strange to us. We know that that's the case. The world knows that's the case. Um, I, I can tell you example, example, even out of Hollywood, someone's in trouble, they're going to pray, and they're going to make all these great promises, God, if you deliver me, then I'll live for you, I'll do this for you, I'll give you my stuff, I'll do all this. And then um, once they're delivered, they forget all those things. Right? Because now I'm not in trouble anymore, and so now I start to... Uh, well, I really didn't mean that, and I really mean that. And we excuse ourselves from those commitments we made and, and when we were in trouble and asking for deliverance. Uh, but for the believer, we have a very different mentality towards this because we are in trouble not wanting necessarily to be delivered from it in this world. And this is hard for us to lay hold of because we are raised in the United States. And we are raised in an environment of extraordinary comfort uh, that makes us feel like the slightest little thing that doesn't go our way is suffering. And it isn't. Um, it is simply, for, for many people in this world, they would love to suffer like you suffer. Uh, because you suffer so little. 
Uh, but we count these things, oh, this is hardship. Um, I have to uh, share a ride with somebody to work because my car broke down. Oh, that's a hardship. You know how many people don't have cars at all? They're walking several miles, not to go to work, but to go get water and to carry it back to their house. Miles walking with water on their heads, usually. And so they'd love to suffer like you suffer. And when we talk about our sanctifying the Lord God in our hearts, as we set him apart as our God, that we are dependent upon him. And the wealthier you are, the less likely you are to have a mentality that sets apart God as your provider, as your king, as your lord, as your master. You just don't trust in him on that level. And that's why when you see throughout the examples of Israel, when they're in trouble at the crossing of the Red Sea and Pharaoh is, is right on their backside, breathing down their throat, wanting to kill them, down their back, breathing to kill them, they cry out to the Lord. The Lord answers them. They cross the Red Sea on dry ground. But how long is it before they're complaining again? But it is understanding that dependence upon God that we are called to remind ourselves that, that we are to set God apart in our hearts. And that this is part of the process that suffering enables us to have. That, well, am I really trusting in my God? possessions? Am I trusting in these human relationships? Am I trusting in these abilities or knowledge that I have? Or am I trusting in the Lord? And the person that goes out and gets his food day by day and has to go and get food each day because he doesn't have the resources to get food for a year in advance, and I'm pretty sure I could eat for a year out of my house out of what I have in my house right now. Maybe not as feastfully as I do every day now, but if I had, I'm pretty sure I could do that. Uh, and because of storage, they don't have that capacity. They don't have availability. And so they're trusting the Lord day by day. And of course, Jesus brings out a very powerful message about that uh, in the description of who's giving what. You know, what have you given to me? You sang earlier this morning, and God, Jesus gave everything. What have you given to me? And we think, well, you know, God is, is so pleased and so blessed by me giving whatever percentage uh, in my offering. And he points to this gal and says, well, this gal didn't give a lot in terms of what you would count a lot. It was just a mite, just a, a penny. But it was all she had. And that means 100% that it is the Lord's. And this is what it means to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts, is that we recognize that all that I am, all that I have, is the Lord's. It is at his disposal. And uh, we can, with Job, say the Lord has given this to me. It is the Lord's right and possession, and thus he can take it away as well, because it never really was mine. I'm simply the manager of what belongs to someone else. And so how do we get to this point? Well, we have to set God apart in our hearts. And the mechanism that we have for that is suffering, is trouble, is opposition. 
because now I realize I can't trust this in this world. I can't trust these people in this world. I can't trust these items in this world, these possessions. I, can, I have to trust the Lord. And this is modeled for us in the Lord's Prayer, right? Uh, are we, what do we pray? In the Lord's Prayer, we are modeling to provide for our daily needs. Give us this day our daily bread. It doesn't say give me the daily bread for a month from now, two months from now, three months from now. Now, you guys know that I'm into preserving food because I have a garden, I have these animals, and so I understand that my garden runs out, we're getting, and, and that we have winter, and we have to be, eat during winter as well. So you obviously need, I do a lot of food preservation, canning and things like that. Um, and they did back then too. They had seasons like we do. Uh, they had two seasons, growing seasons, and still do in Israel. Um, but uh, when we talk about it, it's that whole dependence. We are praying for dependency, for God provide for our daily needs. Give us this day our daily bread. That we have this understanding of God as our daily sustainer. Well, we come further, and now we are in the Verse 15, and we're going to develop one point, and it'll take a couple weeks before we get to the final point, I think. I thought I'd get two of them like I did last week. I did two last week. I don't know that I'm going to do that. Although if the clock doesn't move, I think I can just do both points. And maybe next week, no, another one, I don't know. Verse 15 says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Now, we have yet another thing we are suffering for. And this you know, sounds kind of weird to your ears again, probably just like the last one did, and maybe like the first one did, is that I am suffering for the benefit of the lost around me. I am suffering for the privilege and the opportunity to share my faith with those I encounter. Now, we have a different mentality, and we talked about this a little bit last week, it, that has been horribly done in American religious circles, and that is we are convinced that the, the position of, uh, the platform, I should say, the platform for evangelism is a condition of being healthy and wealthy and popular. We'll add that one in too. And so the people who really have a platform to glorify God and share Christ with the lost are those who have great resources of wealth, uh, incredible, uh, un almost unnatural health, and uh, great success that we set these people up and they sit there and tell you, God has blessed me so much with all this stuff. And then they seek to entice people in a relationship with God, offering the same thing, health, wealth, and worldly success. And that's been a model that has been around in the United States almost as long as we've had the United States. It has been more and more abused in these last days. Well, what has that done to the message of Christ for those that are suffering and are in despair? What about those who have 
said, well, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus Christ and didn't get success, didn't get wealth, didn't get health. What does that do? Well, uh, we call that inoculation evangelism. That's the term that I was taught. And that is that they accept Christ under the premise that that's the mechanism to get God's outpouring of material blessing in their life because that's what we offer them, health and wealth. It doesn't happen to them uh, either immediately or even in the long term. And then they abandon that commitment because it didn't work out for them. And that's exactly what I I tried that and it didn't work out. What do they really mean by that? What they mean is the offer that we pre presented to them did not come to fruition in their life because of their faith, and therefore uh, their, their faith is wrongly placed. And so because that's been the model of our evangelism so heavily in Christendom, in American Christendom, and, and Western Christendom, really, we have lost track that the more powerful model is those that will endure suffering and stand. The most powerful testimony of Job's life was not how wealthy he was nor how wealthy he died, but that even in the midst of having nothing and having everything taken away, he refused to blame God, glorify God, and would serve God nonetheless and would never speak against God. And in that is the power of the testimony and when we look at the apostles and we see their ministries, we recognize that the first thing Jesus Christ asks of them is, put down your fishing nets and come follow me. Think about that. Put down your livelihood and come follow me. You mean we got to quit our job? Yep, come follow me. i got something better. And these guys had a huge transition in their life. They meant three years of wonders, certainly, and seeing awesome things and hearing incredible teaching. Uh, but then at the end, they kind of failed Jesus pretty badly and had complete turmoil. And even in the, after the Holy Spirit comes and they have the power of the gospel and they're out there preaching with power and able to perform miracles, they were still opposed. They were beaten for it. Beaten. And they counted that a joy that they were counted worthy of that, and they persisted. And it was that persistence in the midst of strong opposition, and Paul himself says, I know how to abound, and I know how to be abased. I know how to be in want. I know what it means to be hungry. There are times we, we think Paul always had all of his needs met, but he says that's not the case. Sometimes I, I was hungry. Sometimes I was cold. Sometimes I was, I was wet and and. This is a tent maker. Uh, and he's like, I know how that is. I've been shipwrecked. I've been, you know, swimming around the Mediterranean in a storm. I've been through those things. Yet I persisted in following after Jesus Christ with one mind. And so the world looks at you, and so we are ready. And we think, well, well I'm ready to give a defense to people ask the reason for the hope that is in you. And we often capitalize H, hope, and think of it as being Jesus Christ in us. But that's not what they're asking you. They're asking you, why, in a season of despair, do you have hope? That's the context of this verse. 
in a point where you are of opposition and trouble and, and suffering, why do you have joy? Why, with, when the world is in despair, are you hopeful? Why, when everyone else is worrying and wringing their hands, are you praising God and moving forward with, with it seemingly just rolling off of you like you're waterproof? That's the context here. Now, how can they ask you that question if there is not environments that would call for despair in your life? They cannot see, you know, if you're healthy, wealthy, successful, um, what are they going to, are they going to ask you the reason for the hope that is in you? You're not showing any hope. Hope opposite of despair. For the Christian, there's no hopeless situation or circumstance. We simply do not despair to deny God and and we recognize that he is in control, that I am dependent upon him, and therefore, even though the environment around me looks black and dark and it's troublesome and there's suffering, I will not despair. And when I do not despair in the midst of all that trouble, you don't find me wringing my hands, you won't find me pacing the floor, you won't find me in those conditions, and you see me instead with a, with a hopeful heart, uh, a hopeful countenance, and, and a cheery disposition, and they're going to ask you, then they'll ask you, what is with you? What is the reason for the hope that you have when there's nothing but despairing things in your life? Things the world would despair over. Where's your hope coming from? Because it's not coming from your bank account. It's not coming from your other earthly relationships. It's not coming from success. It's not coming. All these things are being ripped away from you, and yet you hope in Christ. Why? What, why are you so hopeful? And we have great examples of that throughout Scripture. Uh, you might ask yourself, we forget sometimes that that Daniel and his companions were taken away from their homeland as slaves, captives. Yes, they were the best and brightest that that the Babylonians identified there, but realize what these men endured before being carried away captive. Jerusalem was sacked by the Babylonians. Not once, not twice, but three times Jerusalem was fallen. Do you know what it means to be in a city that's been sacked by its enemy? This is a place of despair. You don't know if they're going to come in there and kill you, destroy your family, whatever. And the likelihood is all these men had their families slain or enslaved in some other capacity. And yet... They went into Babylon and served. And they still had, even in this condition of being ripped away from home, being separated from family, probability is their family has been killed in the action of the Babylonians. They're carried away, mourning over the loss because of God's judgment on their people. I mean, this is a black, black, black environment. Would you not agree? It is reason for despairing in your God. Daniel shows up in Babylon and says, um, 
I am going to serve God, even I'm not going to eat the king's delicacies. I'm just going to eat vegetables um, and pulse. Pulse is just base, very minimal diet. And I'm just going to have water, and, which isn't always a good thing to drink because they didn't have whole house water purification systems. They didn't, and so it wasn't always safe. Uh, we're just going to do that because we're trusting in the Lord. These people are saying we're trusting in our God after, from everybody's point of view, they have been forsaken by their God from a worldly perspective. Would you agree? It is a place of darkness and despair. They're in a land where they don't know the language. They're in a position of having everything taken away from them. And they are now standing up and saying, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts and keep serving him. And it's no wonder that Daniel got the attention of the eunuch that was in charge of their care. And, and this guy is different. Everyone else is going like this. This guy's going, let's go. I'm ready. I'll take you all on. Let's do a trial. Let's do a test. I'll put my God up against your great health and wealth diet. Because I guarantee you the king's delicacies for these men were meant to make them strong and recovered so they could be in the king's service. This is the best Babylon had to offer. And Daniel says, no, I turn that down. I'm going to trust in the Lord and let's see who, and he's ten times better than everyone else at the end of it. He and his friends. Because they trust in the Lord. What kind of relationship do you have that in the midst of despair gives you such hope that you will never deny him, even though it seems from a world standpoint he's forsaken you. And these, that's just one example. We, could, we can find plenty of examples similar to that. Joseph, of course, uh, comes to mind very quickly. But even Hezekiah and others, in the midst of great despair, cry out to the Lord, and the Lord demonstrates his faithfulness to them, whether individually or nationally. And so this is what gives cause for people to ask, why do you keep hoping? Their assumption is, is that everyone who is getting their way and has plenty of food and a comfortable home and multiple vehicles are going to be happy. Because that's their concept of happiness. So you should be happy because you're rich and healthy and you have a nice family and all those things. So there's no reason for them to ask for the hope that is in you when everything's going your way. That's just not going to be a reality. And if you say, no one's really asked me the reason of the hope that is in me. Well, I'm telling you why. Because <laughs> you have an easy life. And they expect you to be happy. Because you have a good life. Take it all away. Have it all taken away. Let the world rip it out of your hands. Tear your heart by destroying your family. Take away everything familiar to you. Will you still serve the Lord in your heart? That will bring cause for people to ask you the reason that, for the hope that is in you. And that is why suffering 
is one of the greatest and strongest mechanisms for real evangelism. Everywhere where persecution has heightened, the gospel has flourished. Why? Because believers, even though all of their relationships were, were stripped away from them, all their possessions were stripped away from them, they were being tortured, still kept praising God. And the influence of that and the impact upon that of those around them was overwhelming. And the response had to be, what is it that's in you? Because I would have just forsaken my rock on the shelf a long time ago. That's their God. Rock on the shelf. Okay? But you won't forsake your God no matter how bad it gets. In fact, you've seen us Praise him more. And that's exactly what the disciples were about. They see the hope that is in you. You have an answer to them. And that answer is pretty important. But I just want to set the premise here. The premise is, is that you have hope in the midst of despair. And since most of us do not live despairing environments, we have little opportunity to show hope in the midst of despair. And maybe that's why our evangelism is so weak. It's because we're so wealthy and healthy and successful by the world's eyes. That they, we are really using covetousness as the mechanism of the gospel instead of awe at hope in despair. Because that's really what we are, we are offering. is not health, wealth, and success. We are offering hope in despair because the world has no hope. And so we are to be ready to give a defense. And that's the word used here, uh, a defense. And you'll hear a term in, in theological circles of apologists. Um, and that's not making apology in the sense you think of, of apologizing for this and this, like you're sorry for it. Uh, apologists are those that defend the faith. And so they have either arguments from reason, personal experience, uh, hopefully from God's word, to defend what we believe against those who want to say that we are foolish for believing anything. So... We, there are different categories of apologists, and, um, and their work is important. And so we, we see that we are called to defend our hope in the midst of despair. They're asking you why, do you, why don't you despair? Why don't you give up? Why don't you just curse your God and die? So sometimes you have to defend that against family members, because that was Job's wife. Sometimes it's family members that you have to be an apologist in front of. Uh, it, but usually, the ones you have to be apologist are those who are actually causing your suffering. Defend your faith. Why don't you just give it up? And I'm convinced that right now, in the country of Afghanistan, there are a number of Afghanis. We know that many have become Christians in these last 20 years. And no one wants to talk about that impact of sending men and chaplains and soldiers that are Christians first and Americans second 
into that environment and how many have received Christ because of them. And yes, it is worth keeping a force on the ground for that reason of nothing else. And if you're wondering, is that okay? Well, we've been doing it in South Korea. Since the South Korean War, we have never evacuated our forces. Ever. They're still there. We call them bases. Right? So we have Afghanis today who are being tortured, I'm convinced, to say, just deny this Christian faith in Jesus Christ. Everything has been ripped away from them. In a matter of a few months, everything is gone. Their freedom, any concept of, of a fair and just society is gone. And so today, you need to be praying, not that they be delivered, but that they show their hope, and then that these persecutors would say, why won't you just forsake him? What is the reason for this hope that you have? And that they will then defend their faith. That they will be the apologists and, and minister the gospel to the very ones who might be their persecutors or their slayers even. And so we are ready to give a defense, but that defense is not a brash, bold challenge of, well, you can do whatever you want to me, but I'm not going to. No, no, no. Notice the last few words of this verse. This is with meekness and fear. Not fear of them. This is not the concept of being fearful of the suffering, but recognizing that you have to answer to God for what and how you communicate the gospel in those environments. And again, weakness does not mean that you do it from a position of having no power, but that you do not exert that power over against someone else. That you are going to gently defend your faith to these very ones who are causing your suffering who may have just slaughtered your family members in front of your eyes. Can you be gentle, meek towards them? Communicating the gospel in a manner that says, God is going to hold me accountable for every word, and I do not want to misrepresent him, and therefore out of my fear of the Lord, I'm going to speak carefully and precisely to these who consider me their enemy. Because it is certain that we could uh, say some very bold things and call upon God to do hideous things against them, and there will be a time for that, and that will be in heaven if you're in the position of a martyr that you can cry out to God to bring fairness. But today is not that day. Today is the day of salvation. And so we speak differently, and we speak in terms that invite them to in consider who Jesus is in our life. That we care for those who despitefully use us, as Jesus says in the Beatitudes. That we seek to bless them. Remember, you are called to be a blessing in verse 9 of 1 Peter 3. Can you bless those that persecute you? 
And so we are ready. Be ready. Are you ready? Most of us aren't even ready for this, which means preparation. So we're preparing ourselves, our hearts. We're preparing the fact that we're going to have to have a circumstance of despair that we are going to be show hopefulness in and that we are ready to give a right answer in the right way. So we're going to give a defense answer. Here's the truth of my faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not doing it in an egotistical and a proud way, but rather in a, in a loving and caring fashion that says, do me all the injury you need to, uh, but I'm going to stick with Christ. You want to know why? It's because, and we start into that defense. And certainly among that defense is that, well, my Lord suffered for me. Where does my defense of my hope come from? Because Jesus Christ, God loved me so much that he sent his only begotten son to die for me. And that he overcame that by the power of the resurrection. You crucified him, God raised him from the dead. So you, you kill me, God will resurrect me to life. And I don't sit there and curse you and say, I hope God resurrects you to eternal punishment. But rather, the offer is there for you too. This is what it means to be, give a defense with meekness and fear. You are still in that circumstance, and maybe particularly in that circumstance, you are the representative of Jesus Christ to those people. And even if they aren't your persecutors and they are a third party observing what's happening to you, you still approach them, not with this proud, go ahead, make my day attitude, but rather with an attitude of, of, I can only do this by the power of Jesus Christ because of what he has done for me. And so we engage in this and we, and we invite it because we recognize without trouble without suffering we cannot really show hope and so as you encounter even the small little points of suffering that you have in your lives uh, a death of a loved one because of a medical thing or an accident but no one's out there hunting them down because they're Christians but even in those small events that we show hope, that we do not mourn as those who have no hope. We do not grieve that way. Even, even for the unbeliever, because we have a different hope. Our hope is in the Lord. We have set him apart as our God. And he has that position no matter the circumstances of life around me. He is still my God. Do to me what you please, yet I will serve him. It might appear I've forsaken, but I am not. And, and I don't say that brashly or roughly or, or, or proudly. We say it, the Lord is my shepherd. He is my God. I cannot abandon him. And this is our testimony. What is the expected result. Peter, if you notice here, does not say that they will 
believe, that they will come to repentance. That's not what he states here. And in fact, there isn't a lot of evidence in Peter's ministry life that we know of in Acts and in his writings uh, where that is the outcome. Remember that Peter also got beat up and thrown in prison, right? He shares that with Paul. So he also lived through that. And remember the church was praying and that he was, <laughs> get up, <laughs> kicked, <laughs> something, shaken awake by an angel, said, get out of here. Uh, and he is released, and you wonder what happened to his prison guard. But um, he gets out there, and um, the people that beat him in the Sanhedrin didn't come to repentance, by and large. Some did. We know that because when Paul shows up there, James says that some of the uh, Pharisees and the leaders of the people did receive Christ. We do see some leaders of synagogues in Paul's ministry. So some leaders did. But in Peter's exact circumstances, we see no evidence that many of those who are persecuting the church, and him particularly, uh, responded to God's deliverance of Peter and Peter's testimony through repentance. But that's not what Peter says happens all the time. In fact, Peter points to something very different. He says that they should be ashamed. The first effect that we want to see is that they are ashamed. Now, we don't shame them by saying, well, you know, it's not calling them down. Their conscience will do that to themselves. It is by showing a level of faith that they are uncomfortable with and unfamiliar with. That is a level of faith that they don't have in their God. Okay, now you might say, well, a lot of these people die for their faith. Um, and, and that's why we, we talk about the context of suffering that obviously Muslims go out there and they kill themselves for their God, but for what reason? Because they have this concept that they're going to get this, their 70 virgins and their, all this in a place where Allah isn't. Isn't that interesting that the, for the Muslim, heaven is a place where Allah isn't. And they can have all the things they didn't get on earth, they can have in heaven. Because Allah isn't there to make your life hard. And uh, kind of interesting concept. But, um, so that's what they're trying to get. They're trying to really avoid him. We're trying to embrace Jesus Christ. So we come to this and we're called to the suffering. Peter says they should be ashamed. What are they ashamed of? Well, they're probably going to be ashamed of trying to break your faith and the suffering they have put upon you. But that's really a temporal one. They'll just fade away. Um, what really should really penetrate their heart is your faith compared to theirs. They should be ashamed of their faith. Because our faith doesn't call us to injure anybody. Now, I know there was the Inquisition, and, but that was Catholic. That's not our faith. Okay, because, in fact, the people that, that were on the rack and tortured most often in Spain were people like us. Everyone thinks it was others, but it was really other 
Christians. Yes, there were some Muslims that were treated that way and other. But when you hear the word heretics in that context of the Inquisition, realize the heretics are talking about were largely Anabaptists. Okay? So all everyone wants to bring up the Inquisition, Inquisition, and it's like you don't understand what they were doing and who they were doing it to. Do a little more research than just Wikipedia. And so we find that um, we are called to a faith that makes them ashamed that they are trying to destroy yours uh, in a manner that would destroy their own. They would not attempt these things if it wasn't that they knew it would be effective on them. But it's ineffectual on you. And that makes them ashamed. Ashamed that they're doing this to you and ashamed that their faith isn't up to the task. That we not only endure it because it is put upon us, but we have joy in that and we have hope in the midst of that and that we can even articulate that hope to them in a godly, meek, and friendly and fearful manner. That we're able to communicate it that we have it settled in our mind because we have prepared our hearts, not because I have written out what I'm going to say, but because I have sanctified the Lord God in my heart, and therefore I am prepared to give an answer in the midst of my suffering with meekness and fear that will put people to shame. Not because I want to shame them, but because I want to glorify God. We're going to get to that more next week, well, in two weeks. This is the context here. And we often talk about being ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, thinking some fear. And we learn that half a verse. In the midst of a larger section, we forget that this is the concept. Is In the midst of suffering, you can do this. Without suffering, you can't. The opportunities just aren't there. So why does Peter say you should be willing to embrace suffering when it comes your way is because this is one of the most powerful mechanisms for evangelism. We don't worry. Now you're talking to a guy that worries about stupid things. Okay, I stay up and try to solve problems in my sleep and not sleeping and uh, uh, you know, make sure I have enough cement and materials and all that kind of stuff process these things way more than I should. I mean, genuinely worry. Is my faith sufficient? Is my God sufficient? Is this really the truth? These things don't cross my mind. And when the world starts to collapse around us and, and implode upon Christians particularly and the community of faith and, and they want to challenge your faith on many different fronts that we smile and we say well this is great why because we've been waiting for this for over a thousand years two thousand years we've been waiting for this haven't we haven't you been waiting for this your whole christian life i have i remember as a little 10 year old sitting there Ah, Jesus is coming back. I can't wait till Jesus comes back. What am I looking for for Jesus to come back? At 10 years old, I remember the conference in Grace Baptist Church in Austin, Minnesota. I can tell you where I was sitting in the room when it just dawned on me. 
I can't wait till Jesus comes back. This is what we're waiting for. Now it's happening because we see the signs of the times, the evidences that are there. The Bible tells us this is gonna, the world's going to be like this. It's going to be hard. You're going to have to endure. You're going to have to stand. You're going to have to suffer. And the suffering has begun. Oh, it's been going on in other places, but in terms of, the Bible doesn't say regional suffering, it's universal suffering. There's going to be universal opposition to genuine Christians. And I have to use that word genuine now because Christianity envelops all these, I mean, now Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, they're all Christians. Like the genuines. Yes, they will always compromise, but the genuine ones will never compromise. We would rather suffer for doing good for our conscience. And we're going to talk about that a little bit, but really, that's not the primary reason. I'm suffering for doing good, for righteousness, uh, because I've set God aside in my heart, uh, because, and we're going to study, I want to glorify God, but I want to reach the lost around me. And if I just shatter every time things don't go my way, how am I going to show them my hope? If I'm pacing the floor like they're pacing the floor, how am I going to have an opportunity to communicate to them Jesus Christ? Because there's no difference. There should be a difference. I'm not worried. I'm not fretting over this. I'm excited about it. I research this stuff not so that I can be more afraid. A lot of the stuff they want to make you more afraid, I'm not more afraid. I'm more excited. I think you guys see it. I hope you see it. I can, and I should prepare myself. Prepare myself to suffer and prepare myself to communicate my hope with the right words and the right attitude with the expectation not of their repentance but of them being simply ashamed not because I shame them but because they are ashamed in what they are doing and in what they believe because it doesn't measure up to what we believe because we have the truth we have Jesus Christ in us we have the Holy Spirit and (laughs) we have a sure hope as sure as the resurrection of Jesus Christ is my hope. And I'm not going to be afraid of suffering for that. In fact, Peter tells us we should be anticipating it and prepared for it. Not just prepared to endure it, but prepared with a message in the midst of it. We have hope. All you bring to the table is despair. All I'm bringing to the table is hope. The worst you can do to me is darkness. But you can't snuff out the light. This is our message. But it requires suffering to get there. And Peter knew it. Paul knew it. The disciples all knew it. The early church knew this. And they knew that when they were suffering, it in fact magnified the church multiplied the church. The gospel went forward. And so with Paul, no matter what happens to me, that's not the relevance. 
The relevance is what happens with the gospel. And in Philippians, he shares that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what happens to me. I live, I die. Um, I'd rather die and go to heaven, but if it's better for you, I live, that's okay. But the question is, and if people want to share the gospel for this motive or that motive, I'm not responsible for their motives, I'm responsible for mine. Whatever happens, I just want the gospel to go out more and more. Is that our spirit? Because that's our hope and that is our mission. So our mission is one, to share the gospel. One of the strongest mechanisms historically for that and biblically for that is the Christian's with the Lord of God sanctified in their hearts, enduring suffering with great hope. Oh, that that would be our testimony here. As a church, as families, as individuals, to your own family members, both within your home and extended, to your neighbors, to your co-workers. And when they defame you as evildoers, they will be ashamed because they realize you're really doing what's right. But we don't want to acknowledge that because we're doing evil. We're the evildoers. You're the righteous. But we're going to shame, we're going to try to accuse you, defame you as being evildoers. We're going to talk about more about that next week. Or I'm sorry, in two weeks. Let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word. And the consistency we have in it. Lord, we want you to be glorified in our midst. Not by the measure of men, not by the measure of televangelists and these that do not speak according to your word of truth. Lord, we want to glorify your name as being ambassadors of your righteousness and your kingdom to those around us. And we recognize from your word that we should anticipate them not wanting to hear that message, not wanting to see that message in people's lives. Lord, help us to maintain and to strengthen our faith in preparation for enduring suffering that we might truly set you apart as our God. Lord, we have so many other little gods in our life. Lord, help us to remove them. We might serve you and you alone. And Lord, we thank you for your goodness to this church family. not only in what the world would consider our protection, but for the opportunity you've given us to grow in our knowledge of you and our faith in you, that we might be ready. Ready to receive tribulation from this world. And ready to not just barely endure, but to endure with hope and joy and with a mouths and lives that testify of your love, of your power to deliver, and of a future that is secure in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray 
that you might come quickly. We recognize that the peril of the end times is perhaps just beginning. Lord, we with great expectation only look for your coming, but we look around at the lost around. We look at their fear. We look at their despair. Frantically trying to avoid death. Trying to avoid the threats. Lord, give us a different spirit. A confidence knowing that you are our God. That you will never fail. Lord, as you remind us of that, may it strengthen us that we might not fail you nor these around us who need our testimony, who needed to see our hope, to hear the reason for that hope. That they might go from being ashamed to being surrendered to you, even as we surrender ourselves. We again thank you for your word. Lord, we know that we are largely insulated from such suffering so far. So we are fearful that our faith may not be up to the task. Lord, help us. Strengthen us. That the joy of the Lord might be evident in all of our lives and the decisions we make day by day and the faces that we present to the world hour by hour. That you might receive the glory. In Christ Jesus' name. Amen.